as we sort of saw at the end of last class, man and woman are members of a greater community. We, part of the body of humanity, and as baptized individuals, part of the body of Christ. We have a responsibility to act as Catholics. We have a responsibility to the common good in society. So we want to look here, and we, we're going to look at it later, sort of the social dimension of morality. Of We've already kind of looked at it, you know, the, the importance of friendship and morality and community, that we come from a family, we exist in a larger communal body. But what I want to do is sort of look at that, but specifically being a member of the church and the essential role of the church plays in the formation of our moral lives and even our moral consciences. Of course, as we've seen, we are sons and daughters of God the Father through baptism. We also are baptized into Christ. But in doing so, we've also been baptized into his body, the church. We're not just part of Jesus. We're also members of his mystical body on earth. And so as a result, this being Catholic forms part of our identity. As we said before, even though, yes, hey, there's a personal sequela Christi following of Jesus, we're not just following him as an individual. We're following him as a body. We're all on this journey together. And we have a responsibility as humans to our brothers and sisters, but we have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So there is inherent a communal dimension to a communal slash ecclesial dimension to the moral life. <clears throat> Ratzinger, in fact, will say that, that one of the sources of moral knowledge is the community. That, that, that there are teachings and experiences that have been passed on from generation to generation of how to live out certain truths and what certain truths are. And we've got to see ourselves in relation to that larger community that we as persons exist in relation. But here specifically to the church and its relation to our identity as Catholics and specifically the moral life. Which I guess is the flip side of what at least the class on conscience was trying to emphasize the, the role of the, the responsibility the conscience has to learn, be formed by the magisterium and, and the teaching authority of the church. But the magisterium, as we'll see, has got to be situated within the larger context of our life as Christians and as Catholics. As Catholics, when we act, we always act as members of the church. And I kind of highlighted and, and put an article that Molina had about that communal ecclesial dimension of our moral life. It's an article that Molina has, which is more legible and easier to understand than some of the other stuff. 
But one of his big themes is the church is the dwelling or the home for our moral lives. And, and I didn't know this, and some of you, how many of you are good at Greek in here? I'm not, I don't really know Greek. Y'all got some nerds in here, gotta be good at that. All right. Well, he, he does. Well, he talk, well, Melina talks about this distinction that in Greek there are two, there, there's the word ethos and ethos, one that starts with an epsilon and one that starts with an eta. Did you know, do y'all know that? So one, and, 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 and Aristotle makes this distinction, Melina claims, the Nicomachean ethics, that one ethos means ethics, and the other, I think, that starts with an eta, means habitation. So there's a connection between our ethos and our moral life and, and being formed in a home, or as a place where we act. He also goes into, and I didn't get to look at the research, the, some, one of these Greek words connected to freedom means to be at home and to feel at home. Somehow our, our moral life is formed in a home. And this is back, he's going back to the Greeks here. He's not talking about a Catholic perspective, but yet we could take this, this etymological origin or this linguistic little trick and come to have a better understanding of the role that the family, let's say, has for human formation, but the larger family of the church, the body of Christ. And this is a reminder, though, this responsibility we have as members of the body of Christ to help us avoid falling into this nebulous ecclesial image that we're members of the church, but in the sense that we're members of the church, but there's no obligation that's put on us to build up the body of Christ. Well, you can be a radically individualized Christian without forgetting that you have responsibility to others, other individuals, your church parish, your diocese, the church as a whole. And that also we belong to a church that has a hierarchy. While we respect and we understand the church of the people of God, the body of Christ, she is institutional. And there is a hierarchical structure. Jesus chose 12 apostles. He gave them authority. He put them in charge of shepherds. They picked up deacons. There were presbyters that followed from that. And so it's not just enough to say, oh, I'm a baptized Christian and I'm a member of the Catholic Church, but I can do what I want. We're also seen in relation to the hierarchical church, to the teaching authority of the church, to the pope and the bishops as shepherds. Now, we can get into a big debate over local church versus universal church. We can sit and talk about synodality. But in context of a lot of what we've been talking about here, and, and I'll even say from my, my pastoral experience, for the average Catholic today, even like the really good Catholic, 
Um, what kind of influence does the magisterium or the church teaching have on, let's say, their, their daily life? Probably very little. And this is something that I reflected a lot upon. You know, you can, and this, I'm not making a critique of the Pope, but we've already talked a little bit about this. Like, Popes can say so much stuff, and there can be so much stuff from social media that you just begin to drown it out. We're not even listening to it. We talked about that, that we face in the culture today. But there is still, I think, particularly in America, an, an anti-authoritarian attitude, which goes back, what is, what is the original heresy in the United States? Americanism. Americanism. Well, we're over here, you're over there, we're going to do what we want to do. Don't tell us what we can do. And that, and that, I think, probably gets into just the general American ethos. The rugged individualism. Rugged individualism that we don't really need the magisterium, we don't really need the church. But the magisterium is there to teach. Um, it, it is the teaching authority of the church. You know, going and looking at Veritas Splendor, where the Pope is just drilling home, that the magisterium has a role. And, and I think as priests, we need to teach that. But the question is how to teach it so that people can accept it, particularly a people who tend to be radically individualized and often very disconnected from what's going on. And maybe as a Catholic, as a priest, you're going to be so used to your little Catholic circles that you're going to think that everybody reads all of the papal encyclicals and the CDF documents. Most Catholics couldn't even tell you what this is. It's not the CDF anymore. What do they call it? There's some new term for it. But anyhow, they don't even know that it's not even called the CDF anymore. Some of y'all probably didn't even know that it was called the CDF anymore. They don't know what an encyclical is. No, they don't. They don't. And so, but how do we take this and, and teach it to them and build them up? So we know, of course, the magisterium. If y'all had ecclesiology, magisterium stuff, I mean, it's composed of the pastors of the church, the pope and the bishops, all at the, the service of truth, Lumen Gentium 25. The Roman pontiff and the bishops are authentic teachers, that is, teachers endowed with the authority of Christ, who preach the faith of the people, entrusted to them the faith to be believed and put into practice. Lay people do play a role with the sense of the faithful, although they are not officially part of the magisterium. And, and, and I think in days gone by, before Vatican II, you know, we, the Pope, would speak in the royal we and, you know, be carried on his little thing with the ostrich feathers and he had his big tiara and maybe some people wished for that to come back. Um, I am not going to think that's the best idea. Um, <clears throat> but regardless, those days are gone and we have probably a humbler, kinder church even if we didn't, if the Pope started doing all that, most people would think he's crazy. We're just not used to it anymore. But to be able to understand that the role of the magisterium, as the key, is not there to tell you what to do. The church and the magisterium is there at the service of the truth. 
that, that the Pope isn't there legislating on his own. The role is to interpret the deposit of the faith, scripture and tradition, specifically in matters of faith and morals. The Pope and the bishops are not there as masters to make us as servants follow their bidding, but to exhort, to guide and protect. And even within the magisterium, there are different levels of teaching, which you're going to probably all get into. And yes, there's a charism infallibility, but it, it pertains to very, very specific proclamations and very specific instances. But the one that tends to cause the most problem, or this is where the friction was, was again going back to Humanae Vitae. Most people, again, before the magistrate and the Pope, we love the Pope. But the Pope says, oh, no, you can't do this in the area of sexuality, and it begins this significant divide where you not only have lay people, you have priests, you have theologians, you have bishops openly dissenting from the magisterium on issues. I don't know. Do you think anyone cares about like today, we talked about this. In the early days of the church, people would break into fistfights over dogmatic discrepancies. Who are you to say that Christ has one will? We're gonna, I'm gonna beat you up for that. Let's. Can you imagine the church today any like dissent over dogmatic teachings? Can you imagine that? as opposed to most everything that we dissent from doesn't deal with orthodoxy, but it's almost all orthopraxy. At the beginning of the church, at least I'm not aware there were a lot of problems with orthopraxy. People got passionate about ideas. Today, it's about behavior. And we believe though, and this is the issue, that the church has the ability to speak on faith and morals and Catechism 2036 says, the magisterium has the authority to interpret the natural law. She also can set standards or expectations for her members, which, are, which of course, are going to be called the precepts of the church, which we'll probably get into a little bit later. Uh, 2036. And this gets into this big discussion about not just the, the, the power of the magisterium, but the power of the papacy. I love what the way Ratzinger says it. Quote, the true sense of the teaching authority of the Pope consists in his being the advocate of the Christian memory. The Pope does not impose from without. Rather, he elucidates the Christian memory and defends it. This is his concept of anamnesis. So here, it's a richer, fuller understanding of the role of the Pope in relation to the other bishops. This is maybe what the synod on synodality is going to touch about. But if we're going to make some headway, I think it's not just about the teaching, but it's not just about the message, but the messenger. If we want to proclaim the truth, what matters isn't, and it's going to be the most convincing, as we said, is not the truth itself, but the goodness of the messenger. And our own moral lives as priests and as representatives of the church, but to help 
the church become attractive? I think I, I gave you a quote from Madeline Delbrell on that. So I don't know if I've, I've mentioned this before. How many of you have read or are familiar with the book, uh, The Office of Peter by von Balthasar? Well, in the original German, it is called the anti-Roman sentiment. And it's a great book, I think, on teaching authority of the church. And he talks about, and he's writing this after Vatican II, this anti-Roman sentiment, this rebellion against the magisterium. And he tries to uh, promote a, a much larger understanding of the church. And we're going to sort of look at that. But ultimately, the root of it is, is to help people understand the magisterium of the church is a gift, not as some imposition. Have I told y'all or, or, or explained the um, the chair of St. Peter's story in the Basilica? Have I explained that to y'all? So when I was in Rome, here it's story time. When I was in Rome, my apostolate was giving towards the upper Basilica. And I explained to y'all that a lot of the times I'd bring people in there and they'd be overwhelmed by the beauty. But through my own studying, I tried to use the building as a way to explain deeper truths. Because a lot of times I'd fallen away Catholics or people who weren't Catholics who would come. And one of the key moments in the tour, even though you can't do it now because you can't get all the way to the back, is Bern- and, and the apse, Bernini's Chair of St. Peter. Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? This big majestic bronze chair. And I guess maybe I could pull it up on the screen, or y'all can pull up on your computers. And there's the chair, and you have the, the, the window of the Holy Spirit, and you have four of the fathers of the church, Ambrose, Athanasius, Christus, and Augustine, all in their Baroque robes, holding the chair up. And, and you know, I would go, and I'd say, well, this, this is sort of like the apotheosis of the, the teaching authority of the church, and particularly... You can make the argument that in a certain sense it is. It's the Baroque period. It's the Counter-Reformation. And so the church is looking at what Luther was putting down and and exulting. And it can be seen, I think, as something that might be rather oppressive or or not good. However, I think there can be a different interpretation. And I think there needs to be a different interpretation. When you go there, if you look very closely, you probably can't see it online. I would point out so that the bishops, these four bishops, uh, represent the male authority of the church. And to the average viewer would go and look at them, look at them holding up the church, telling us we must obey. But that's not the movement of the work of art. So you have to sort of understand Baroque in general, but if you look at it, Above, there's this beautiful window, the amber window of the Holy Spirit. And they have the clouds bellowing down. And there's all these clouds and little angels. It's very clearly not an upward movement at all. Because the, the heavens are opening up. Part of the whole thing is, if Luther was influenced by Beale, who was influenced by Occam, who basically said, heaven is here, earth is here, the devil the two shall meet, Part of the the way that the Counter-Reformation was, oh no, heaven and earth do meet. And the magisterium and the sacraments, 
and, and they use the art to express that. And so here is heaven and earth meeting, but it's not the earth coming up to meet heaven, but heaven coming down to meet earth. And so the clouds are bellowing, and actually it's the chair which is descending from heaven as a gift of the Spirit for the church. But the key to look at to understand this, for interpreting it, if you look, if you, any of y'all have the computer up and you have a high-res image, it appears that the, the, the four fathers who are a symbol of, of this Petron authority are holding on to the legs of the church, but they aren't. Can, you, can anybody see what they're doing? What are they doing? The they, there's, yeah. At each of the legs, there's a rope coming out of it yeah. that it's tied into a loop. If you look at it, there's a loop. And they have two fingers hooked through the loop. They're not touching it. So it's sort of like, you know, you have a loop and a hook that is trying to connect a plane for, like, refueling. Or, or whenever the planes land on the aircraft carriers, they connect on this little hook that stops them. What's happening is, is they are receiving the chair as a gift. They're not holding it up. They're receiving it. And they're kind of giving it to the church as the gift of truth from the spirit. But the fact that they are not grasping it means that they do not give us the truth. They simply are receiving it in order to be able to hand it to us. And, and this is the and I teach people this and they're whoa, father, this is amazing how art can help us understand these things. But. It brings a much larger perspective where what I would do is go from that and I go back to the, ch- the altar and, and where you have the bones of St. Peter. And getting into this idea that um, here's Peter, who is the real, the body of Peter is the symbol of that authority and the Petrine authority within the church. All right? But... If you've been to St. Peter's, there's Michelangelo's dome, which tends to cover the whole entire thing. What color is Michelangelo's dome? Blue. It's blue. Very, very blue. And in that whole area there, you have Longinus, you have St. Veronica, the statues, but you have no discernible Marian imagery. There are actually only a few images of Mary in the whole entire basilica. Why? Why is that? Because the basilica is Marian. It's like Mary's cape, mantle that is covered over Peter. And this is such a crucial issue that the Marian dimension of the church encompasses the Petrine dimension. This is in Mulier Sinitata number 27, where he talks about the Marian and Petrine dimension of authority in the church. So for, for me, this becomes so crucial for us to be able to promote a, a, a deeper understanding of the teaching of the church and the magisterium. The Petrine authority is valuable, but if we look at the way that, that, that the men receive the chair, I think it was David Schindler who said this, that 
the, Peter's yes to the church is first based on his Marian yes to Christ, of his receptivity. The church is fundamentally not Petrine, but Marian. So in this little quote that John Paul II uses in Mulier Sigitatum, he has a footnote where, here's another little trivia, John Paul II, on everything he wrote as a pope, only quoted a living person once. Did you know that? And it's in Mulier Sigitatum. Who did he quote? It was Balthazar. He quoted Balthazar here in 87, two years before his death. And he quoted it from, I think it was from the anti-Roman sentiment, where Balthazar develops this whole idea of the Marian profile, the Marian dimension of the church. Now, granted, I, I applied it to the, the whole idea of the church's mother and, and Peter. But the, the Petron is the, the, the symbol of the masculine authority. And it's important. And it's the magisterium. And we need it. But it is seen, encompassed by the larger Marian authority the authority of love, the authority of compassion, the one that receives rather than imposes or generates. It's an active receptivity. But that Mary is the more proper image of the church. We have a hard time understanding that in the English-speaking world. Why is that? Because we do not have gendered nouns. Every single language, church, is a feminine noun. But English is nothing. Ours comes from the German Kirche, but that's die Kirche. So Balthazar says, that's one of our quotes, Peter never converted anyone with the keys. Peter never converted anyone with the keys. He's been given the authority. And I'm not saying that women should be priests, not at all. But listen to what John Paul II says. The Second Vatican Council confirming the teaching of the whole tradition, recalled that in the hierarchy of holiness, it is precisely the woman, Mary of Nazareth, who is the figure of the church. She precedes everyone on the path to holiness. In her person, the church has already reached that perfection whereby she exists without spot or wrinkle. In this sense, one can say that the church is both Marian and apostolic Petrine. So what am I driving at in all this? Balthazar's argument is we need to emphasize and understand the Marian church, the the Marian dimension, the church of love, of receptivity, the mother who mater et magister, mother and teacher. So magisterium. That's that's the root here, magister, and magisterium is tied to mater. It's the mother who's the teacher. Granted, the sons are the, the primary ones who speak as priests and we have authority, but the, the common title for Mary in the early church was prophetess. She, was a pro- she, she listened and therefore she spoke the word of the Lord. So we can look at ways that women can certainly and need to have a role in the churches is speaking the word of the Lord because they're much better at listening than us idiot men. Much better. But it's that speaking of the word, a deep understanding of the truth that has got to be Marian. But why though, for everything that I've been trying to teach all, as disjointed as a lot of it is, 
Why is this important? Not only the practical level of getting people to say, oh, maybe the church is not the magisterium is not that bad, bad, bad of a thing. It's a gift that we've received from Christ the bridegroom to the bride of the church. Because it, it presents to us a missing element from what overall I've been trying to develop over the course of the semester. So, so remember we talked about our identity as being foundational for our moral life. Our identity is beloved sons and daughters. As we follow Christ and, and live a life in the spirit, God is our father, Christ is our brother. What's missing from this equation? Mother. Mom, mother. So if we're going to have a filial morality, one where we follow as sons and or daughters, you got to have mom, who at the same time is Mary and the church. Um, <clears throat> Balthazar has an article in his Explorations, an essay, which is a brilliant one. It's called, Who is the Church? The church is Mary. So the church is Mary in dimension, but Mary is the church. She is the real symbol of the church. And so not only do we need to have a Marian dimension to our spirituality, but there's that receptivity of Peter, the receptivity of <clears throat> these men who are receiving the gift of the church in order to the chair in order to be able to teach. So that's why I said in St. Peter's there are only two images of the Blessed Virgin Mary. One of them is a fresco. And the other is a small little mosaic. They're both very, very small. Why? Because the whole stinking thing is Mary. <laughs> this big thing, it's Mary. It's, it's the church. She's, it, and so she's the mother. The church is the home. La dimora peragire. The dwelling place for your acting. For your moral life. Where you are formed and you have the freedom to act, to grow into a responsible individual. But we've got to understand that in our own lives to be able to explain it to others. And this is where I think if we can grasp this and communicate it, it is much easier to get people to accept the teachings of the church because it goes back to grounding their identity. So this, again, is sort of my idea, even though applying it to the moral life, but bringing in this whole ecclesial dimension. But it, it leaves out one thing, and this is where we can continue the discussion. I kind of jumped ahead a little bit, but you have father, mother, home, brothers, sisters, identity. What is it, though, what activity tends to form the family unit the most essential element that a family does that connects their unity. What? Meal time. It's meal. It's eating. So also the moral life has got to have a Eucharistic dimension. The Eucharist is the body of Christ. And so the way in which we live in the Marian church, we receive the teaching we live in communion with others in the church, with our brothers and sisters in this bigger home, then we share of the meal. The meal is a sacrifice, of course, 
but we receive the body of Christ. The Eucharist is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. We are part of the body of Christ. The Eucharist forms the church. It's all connected. And so can you really live a moral life without the Eucharist? Very difficult. Why? Because moral life, as the Catechism says, is life in the Spirit. It's conformity to Christ. Well, what do you receive in the Eucharist? You receive the risen flesh, the vivified flesh by the Spirit. You don't receive the crucified flesh. Listen to Bob Balthazar. Melina quotes it, but it's a wonderful quote. While Christians break the one bread, which is the body of Christ, together they all become one body that is precisely the body of Christ. This is true to such an extent that the entire ethics at the heart of the church derives from the fact that we are members of one another and the same body, branches of the same vine. The ontology of this mystery prescribes the morality which follows. Hence the ontology of a mystery in which the believer has no introspection but can only accept in faith decides the acts which he, with his own great responsibility, must carry out or lay aside. So if you reflect more on this mystery of the Eucharistic dimension of the moral life, you'll see, oh, I am in communion with others. I am in communion with the hierarchy, the priesthood, who, and the bishop who gives the priest the authority to say the Mass, who gives the Eucharist. I'm conformed to Jesus. M- moral life is about love. What is the Eucharist? The self-gift of Christ, the total epitome of what love is. So it all connects there. Um, and that's where I have seen, and I think I alluded to this earlier in the class, we can go about telling people, hey, Y'all need to live a moral life and quit contracepting and quit doing these bad things. Or you could say, hey, y'all, this is really Jesus of the Eucharist. And if you come to Mass and worship and you spend a holy hour outside and you actually have a prayer life, Jesus will begin to work on you and then your life will change. And then your desire to live a moral life will flow from the interior, not an exterior imposition of laws. That's the change I saw over my years as a priest. You could go at it through the, the, the back door, you go to the front door. Hey, obey these laws, be moral, or if you pray and you really live a Eucharistic life, nine times out of ten, the person will fall into line because they will be transformed. It's a very subtle transformation, just like you go to the vine and you're not going to see the grapes develop tomorrow. But there is going to be, I don't know. I, I remember I was at a, several years ago, it's a funny story, I was at a, a monastery, some sisters, and we were, there were, I got invited to this like little fundraiser. There's a, a large organization that gives help to religious and non-religious denominations. And the guy who was the head of this organization I was sitting at the table with, and he's like, Father, you work at college students. Do you all ever have like discussions about women priests? Do they do they want to be women priests or do they want contraception? I said, I'll be honest with you. In my 10 years there, I've never had one come up ask that question. I never have. And he goes, well, I'm really surprised. And I said, to be honest, I'm not. Because the, the students that I encounter want to be there. They love the Eucharist. They have prayer lives. I don't have problems with dissent. Some of them may have questions about certain things, but I haven't seen that, that, you know, 
this wanting, you know, liberation and freedom. Then to which the religious sister across from me, who belonged to an order that doesn't wear habits, and I thought traditionally was pretty conservative, a German order goes, this is not true. There are many young people, the women, they want to be priests. We want to be priests. And they start going, and I, and I, whoa, I just screwed up the, your million-dollar ask here, sisters. It's a different sister they were invited. Anyhow, the point is, I apologize afterward. And they said, Father, we didn't know this was a, a sister of a different order. But they still got their big donations, so it didn't worry. <laughs> they didn't worry about it. But, yeah, if you're go, the people in your parish who pray and who go to Mass and all that, they are probably not the ones wanting to overthrow the church. They may not be super, overthrow the magisterium. They may not be super educated. They may need some nuances in their teaching, but they know how to sentire cum ecclesia, to think with the church. I have a part of that in here of, of Ignatius's 18 rules for thinking with the church. That if we, we're willing to think with the church and be obedient, and follow the law, it's an obedience that is filial. We know our mother and our father want what's good for us. It's not something imposed on the outside, but if you do not have an experience of the church as a home, of a Marian dimension, you're not gonna get it. And this is part of what I loved about campus ministry is there's an experience of the church as a home. The students lived there. I really was actively their dad most of the time. I mean, and I, I'll tell stories about that, but this is a big part of, I think, the problem of the parish. Very few parishes are homes. Now, granted, they're a safe environment. You have to respect that. But what is most, if we're correct, that most people's moral formation is not done intellectually but comes from the home, comes from cultural influences. What does most people experience of the Catholic Church and the parochial model? What, are, what I mean, what do most people experience this as? It's a week place you go on Sunday morning. You go, pick it, you pick up your Jesus, and you hit the road. That's what you got. I'm there, I gotta go pick up my Jesus. Oh, but, and the only interaction a lot of them have, and 80% of your parishioners, is going to be with the parish outside of that is going to maybe register their kids for CCD. And then the five minutes they take to drop them off and leave. Do I think that potentially we need to re-envision the way we do parish life? Yeah, and I understand there are structures there, but what can we do to help build community, build a family, to give a different experience where people want to get involved. Now, I'm going to throw brother under the bus in a good way. But the community is crucified. Your order is very, not very unique, but unique enough. There are brothers, there are sisters, there are priests. But it really is a lay community, or at least it was originally formed as a lay community. But y'all live and work together as kind of a big family. There's a great sense of community that y'all have there. And I don't think you have to force anyone's hand to obey the Pope and to respect the teaching of the church. I think a lot, maybe those people are naturally drawn to your community, 
but being part of a family, a community that I think people find as home helps to form their moral and ecclesial understanding. Would you agree with that? Yeah. No, and and what can we do to make our parishes like that? Because I see it in, in your community and a lot of religious communities in campus ministries too. And what happens a lot of time, college students go to UL or Florida or A and M or wherever there's a vibrant campus ministry, Nichols, and they're like, "Whoa, this is wow! This, I've never experienced this before. This is like I get to know the priest, and people want to be here." And then they go to their average parish, which is completely dead and like can we pass out some adderall before y'all come to, to church so y'all oh y'all at least paid attention it's like the year the year for easter vigil because our easter vigil will last like three and a half hours long maybe i knew the parents and i knew they wouldn't be mine that i said i gave all the altar servers five hour energy now they were all over 12 they're all in high school but let me tell you, let me tell you, boy, poo, they were online <laughs> whole entire time. It was great. There were no mistakes. They were hypervigilant. I was hypervigilant, too, because I drank one. That was the year that I kicked over the one of the plants. I was so excited. Oh, I kicked over the plant. So, yeah. Maybe if you're going to give your kids 12 hours, ask their parents first. But, but here, it's not an illegal substance. But here, we were all one big family. I knew the parents. I knew the kids. It was a great time. So does this make sense? This is, again, this is the way that we teach by living it out. Um, that, are, that of all these things we've talked about, natural law, conscience, the conscience is formed in the home. The conscience is formed in the church, in a lived environment, one that is more predominantly Marian than Petrine. They're both, they exist together, but where they feel loved, they feel welcomed. Hey, y'all are welcome at the parish. Come. Even though, yeah, all are, all are welcome to come in, not all are invited to receive communion. You, gotta, you have to be clean. So we're not just saying... Yeah, y'all, everybody can come in, but there are certain standards that we have to live, but we're going to accompany you. And I think this is where the accompaniment comes in, too. We're moving towards the home. We're we're moving towards a more Marian understanding of the church and of spirituality, but one that draws its power from Christ, particularly in the Eucharist. The, the, The weekly family meal, the daily, let's get together. So that there is a a meal dimension to it, even though the sacrifice is, is primary. The more we draw people to Eucharistic prayer and adoration, I think, in general, it's not a magic solution. From my experience, people are transformed into Christ. They recognize Mary as their mother. The church is the home. And that there's a receptivity to the teaching where we're not pushing against authority, but we're willing to be formed because we ultimately know we're loved. We know we're safe there. Um, but it's going to be up to you as priests and pa- pastors to creatively follow the Spirit 
live your own life as being the father of the parish, being the shepherd, but to help to create that environment. And it's going to be different in city parishes versus rural parishes, uh, but to be able to create a safe place where people know they're loved, they can live their identity, and then the moral life generally will flow from that. Not only the moral life, but desire for vocation, uh, good holy marriages, religious life, priesthood. If you create the, the ground for it, there will be fruit that comes from it that is really not your doing. It really is the Spirit's doing. And you're, you're like, I'm such an idiot, and yet this is still working? you got to know that it's the how, how the Spirit works. But that's you stepping in as fathers, but within the overall Marian church. So we'll wrap this up. I, I do realize I need to add a class on conscience. I may do some research. i got to find a book that I think is good on it, just to, to, to do some more reading or some stuff. But we're going to jump into the next section where we look at sin and vice, but also, but also mercy. And then after that, we should be able to cover that before Holy Week. And then we come back and the last stretch, we will look at virtues and other things. Hopefully I don't, I don't have too many lacunae, but and I, I'll hope to by this weekend post the readings for the sin stuff. But glory be to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning. Now shall be world without end. Amen.